Let me ask you a question right off the bat. Do you believe in miracles? Well, you know what? My, uh, my son and I witnessed a miracle last week. We were watching the NBA playoffs. And my son's favorite team, and it's becoming, beginning to become my favorite team, are the Golden State Warriors. And they were down by 20 points in the fourth quarter. And it was a miracle. It was a miracle comeback. They came back from 20 points. And it was that last second shot by Stephon Curry as he sank that three-pointer with no time left on the clock to put the game into overtime. And, uh, you know, my, my son and I were kind of similar. We're not very, we're not very demonstrative in our, in our emotions. But when Curry made that shot, we were jumping and yelling and screaming and chest-bumping and... and uh, my wife and my daughter were upstairs. They thought the house was on fire or something like that. But it was a miracle. It was a miracle. And I think we witnessed a miracle yesterday when Wade's basketball team won in our Croc Center League. Congratulations, Wade. That's a miracle. But here's a definition of a miracle. It's an event that appears to be contrary to the laws of nature and is regarded as an act of God. An event or action that is amazing, extraordinary, or unexpected. Like that win yesterday. But you know what? We're continuing our series in the book of John. And if you haven't received your little booklet, it's the book of John in a, in a, a very small booklet format. Make sure you get one on the way out. But the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John unveils the majesty and the power of Jesus Christ. We just sang that song. There's power in the name of Jesus. And we see that power and that majesty displayed in a number of miracles. In a number of miracles that Jesus performed. And John's gospel records seven miracles. And these miracles are described as signs. They're not just some magic trick or some hocus-pocus, or some sleight of hand. But there's a deeper meaning behind each of these miracles as it's recorded in John. And as we look at these miracles, each one of them invites us to, to dig a little bit deeper and to see something new about Jesus and how wonderful, how wonderful he is and how powerful and how majestic. And then we need to ask ourselves, as 21st century Christians, what did that miracle that took place 2,000 years ago have to do with me, living here in Kapolei, Hawaii, in the year 2015? So this morning, we're going to look at the very first recorded miracle of Jesus. It's found in John chapter 2. John chapter 2, in the first 11 or 12 verses. And it's interesting because this, this first miracle, or this first sign took place at a wedding, at a wedding. And it's interesting because uh, I've been to a couple of weddings in the last two weeks. In fact, yesterday we had a wedding right here, right here at the Croc Center. I don't know if we have a, there you see, there's a photo. It's of the stage, you can see how beautiful it was. And it was a gorgeous wedding. And uh, some of us went to the reception as well last night at the, uh, at the Pagoda Hotel, and that was quite an experience. It was a Micronesian wedding, and uh, if you had never been to one, uh, 
it's quite an experience, I tell you. There was a, they were throwing money at, at the bride and groom and bringing gifts and everything. It was, it was just a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. But this first miracle, this first sign in the book of John, takes place at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. So if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, it's John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. But what I want to do this morning is, is we know the story. We've seen it depicted. We've probably heard the story many times before. But I want us to take a look at it and maybe examine it a little bit further deeper. And I believe that there are some key truths in this parable or, or in this sign or in this miracle. And I just have four of them for you today. So, and I'm going to go through them very quickly. But the first truth is found in the first couple of verses. And it's called the humanity of the holy life. The humanity of the holy life. I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, the humanity of the holy life. Say it one more time to your other neighbor. The humanity of the holy life. Verse 1 says, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. You know, how, how unexpected that we would find the Son of God at a wedding, enjoying himself. You see, Jesus loved life, and, and he enjoyed life. And our Lord was not a recluse, not like his cousin John the Baptist, who kind of was a loner out in the wilderness. But Jesus accepted invitations to social events, even though his enemies used this to accuse him of hanging out with the wrong crowd. But Jesus entered into the normal experiences of life, but what he did was he sanctified them by his presence. See, Jesus was on a mission to save the world. Jesus' mission was to come and to seek and to save that which was lost. His mission was to save the world, the greatest mission in the history of mankind. Yet, he took the time to attend a wedding and take part in its festivities you know, and sometimes as believers or as Christians, we are tempted to not take time out from our important work for social occasions. But maybe these social occasions are part of our mission. Maybe we can put into practice what we learned in our recent Just Walk Across the Room campaign. In the various social situations that we find ourselves, like at a wedding or a birthday party, or perhaps playing on a softball or, or a basketball team or, or participating in a club. Just the everyday kinds of things that people do. Jesus got involved in those things and he sanctified those times with his presence. And Jesus valued these social occasions because it involved people. And Jesus came to be with people. But Jesus was no different whether he was at a party or a wedding or whether he was worshiping in a synagogue. Jesus practiced holy living 24-7, 365. You know, people today, we compartmentalize our lives, don't we? We compartmentalize our lives. In this particular situation at work, we live and we talk and we act and we think like this. When we come to church, we think differently, we act differently. 
when we're at home, when we're with our friends. We're really good at compartmentalizing our lives. And I'm not talking about our jobs, because we all have to play different roles in our life. But I'm talking about our person, who we are. I'm talking about our sense of integrity. You know, that word integrity, it comes from the word integer, which is a whole number. And that word integrity talks about being one, being a whole person. It means being the same person you are on a Saturday evening that you are on a Sunday morning. It means being the same kind of a person with the same kind of values and the same kind of convictions and the same kind of thoughts and the same kind of actions when you're at a wedding party or they're at your church on a Sunday morning. And see, Jesus does the ultimate job of integrating humanity and holiness. And he sets the standard for us that we need to be whole people, that we need to be the same person no matter where we are, that we're serving the Lord and loving the Lord and having a righteous and a holy heart and the right attitude and the right spirit, no matter where we are, no matter what situation we find ourselves in. The humanity of the holy life. That's the first truth I find in this miracle. The second truth, the second truth, I call it the secret of successful prayer. The secret of successful prayer. Turn to your neighbor and say that. Turn to your other neighbor and say, the secret of successful prayer. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. If you look back in the history, Jewish weddings usually lasted about a week. And it was necessary for the groom... That's right, the groom, not the bride, to have adequate provisions. I still remember, uh, Debbie and I were married about almost 18 years ago now, but I still remember our our wedding and how we planned it. And if you know Debbie, um, she had this brief for our wedding that's probably thicker than my Bible, and she had every detail covered. It was thicker than the brief we have for our our Croctoberfest or our, our Touch of Christmas here at the Croc Center. But she had everything covered, you name it. But like anywhere else, even in a Jewish wedding, it would be very embarrassing to run out of food and to run out of wine. But it happened in this wedding. But we see here Mary, the mother of Jesus. You know, she must have been close to the family because somehow she found out that they had run out of wine. Well, she didn't tell Jesus what to do. She simply reported the problem. It says in verse 3, she just came up to Jesus and said, Jesus, they ran out of wine. You know, the first secret of successful prayer is that we have direct access to Jesus through prayer. We don't need to go through a priest We don't need to go through another person. We don't need to go through a mediator. But we have direct access to Jesus in prayer. If you recall, on Good Friday, when Jesus 
died on the cross. It says that the veil in the temple was torn in two. And what that veil did, it separated the Holy of Holies, a place where only one person, the high priest, could enter into it once a year, one time a year, to make sacrifice and atonement for all the people. The people didn't have direct access to God. But when Jesus died on the cross, that veil, that huge curtain that separated was torn in two. And now we as believers, we have direct access to God through prayer. There's an old gospel song that says, What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. So we have direct access to Jesus. And and the second secret of successful prayer is that we need to trust Jesus for the answer. Sometimes that's a little bit tougher thing to understand. You see, Mary, Jesus' mother, was probably not asking Jesus to perform a miracle, per se. She was simply hoping that her son would help solve this problem for this young couple. And Jesus' response to Mary in verse 4 is difficult to understand, where he says, what is that to me? My time has not yet come. But maybe that's the point. You see, although Mary didn't understand what Jesus was going to do, she trusted him to do what was right. She said to the servants, do whatever he says. She turned the problem over to Jesus, and then she left it in his hands. There's an old saying we used to say when we had problems, when we had needs, we had worries, we had concerns, we would say, let go and let God. Let go and let God. Turn it over to Jesus and then trust him to do that. How often in our prayers we pray and we bring our needs to the Lord and then we leave and then we still worry about it. We still are anxious about it. We still try to do something about it. We're saying, God, I don't trust you. I've given it to you, but I've taken it back. We've got to learn to trust. And so the secret of successful prayer is to trust Jesus for the answer. Mary pointed the sermons to Jesus, not to herself. She knew that she couldn't solve the problem of finding more wine, but she turned it over to Jesus and she trusted him. The secret of successful prayer. And then the third truth this morning. The third truth. It's found in verses 6 and 7. And it's called the pattern for productive service. The pattern for productive service. Turn to your neighbor and say, the pattern for productive service. Say it one more time. It's a tongue twister. There you go. Verse 6 and 7 says, Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. What did the servants do? They simply fulfilled their job. They fulfilled their ministry. 
This is the pattern. This is the pattern of productive service. They filled the jars with water, a job that they were just supposed to do, and Jesus did the rest. You see, we need to do what we should be doing. And as we do our part, God will do his. Remember what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth when they were arguing amongst themselves? He said that, I, Paul, I planted the seed and Apollos watered it, but it was God who caused the growth. You know, as you look back, and I want you to look back into your own, your own personal history of, of spiritual growth, of spiritual development. You, you can see that different people played a role in your development, if you're honest with yourself. Think about it. Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was a teacher. Maybe it was a pastor. Maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was a coworker. Maybe it was a neighbor. And they helped you in your spiritual growth and development. They encouraged you. They prayed for you. They supported you. They were faithful to their ministry to you. And that allowed God to work in your life. You see, it's important for us to fulfill our ministry so that God will work miracles in other people's lives. That's the pattern for productive service. Let me ask you this question. Who, who do you think influenced and taught and discipled and nurtured people like, like Billy Graham or uh, Wayne Cordero or a Ravi Zacharias, or a William Booth, or a Thomas Cheong. Who do you think helped nurture them and disciple them and teach them and mentor them? Those behind the scenes, those nameless servants who simply filled the water jars, who simply fulfilled their ministry. And as they did their part, God did his in the lives of these individuals. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what it would have been like to be one of those servants who witnessed that miracle? They had played such a vital role, yet they were just doing what they were supposed to do. They were just doing their job. They were being faithful in doing what they were supposed to do. Yet, they didn't, yet if they didn't do what they were supposed to do, if they didn't do their job, then there would be no water in the jugs. And if there was no water in the jugs, then there would be no wine. And if there was no wine, then there was no miracle. And so the question we need to ask ourselves today is, how has God gifted you? I believe God has gifted every one of you with spiritual gifts, with abilities, with talents, with passions. But how has God gifted you, and are you fulfilling your ministry in the body of Christ? Are you doing your part and God will do his? 
perhaps among our own church or congregation, there are young people, or there are teenagers, or maybe even young adults. Perhaps there's a future Billy Graham. Perhaps there's a future Ravi Zacharias, or perhaps there's a future Thomas Cheung. The Lord wants you to use your gifts for his service. And as we do your part, God will do his. As you pour your life into someone else, as you use your gifts in ministry to the Lord, the Lord will cause the growth. That's the pattern for productive service. And then the fourth truth this morning, and we're going through this very quickly, but the fourth truth is very simply this, the meaning of a miraculous event. Say to your neighbor, the meaning of a miraculous event. One more time, the meaning of a miraculous event. If you really think about this, it's really a miracle, isn't it? This was a miraculous event. In contrast to some of the later miracles, only a handful of people witnessed this particular miracle. It was the few servants, a few disciples, and the mother of Jesus. So we need to ask this question. What is the meaning of this miracle? What is the meaning of this sign? Did Jesus perform this miracle just to save embarrassment for this family? Well, he did that, but I believe there's a deeper meaning to this miracle. The first meaning, I believe, is is this. That Jesus is the Lord in every situation. Do you believe that? Jesus is the Lord in every situation. No part of life, no part of life is so insignificant that Jesus doesn't care. In every detail of our life, Jesus cares for us intimately. This was just a wedding party of some unknown couple. Jesus probably didn't even know them. He was probably just invited because his mother was invited. That's how some of us get to wedding parties. We go to a party, enjoy the food and the festivities, and we really don't know the people, right? That happens a lot. But Jesus cares for us intimately, just like he cared for this young couple. And it doesn't matter from our our rising up in the morning to our laying down at night, from our health to our finances, to our relationships, to our jobs, to our family, to our future, whatever it is, he knows and he cares about every single thing in our life. He is the Lord of every situation. And if you think that you're going through something and he says, nobody really cares. I'm just so insignificant, I don't think even God cares. Well, let me tell you, Jesus is the Lord in every single situation. And that gives me hope, hope. So Jesus is not just the Lord in every situation, but he, Jesus is the Lord of all creation, of all creation. We used to live in, in uh, Santa Rosa, California. 
That's about an hour north of San Francisco in Sonoma County. And uh, it's a Sonoma and Napa County. And they call this wine country. There were lots of vineyards. Lots of vineyards. And people grew uh, grapes and uh, they had all these wineries all across the countryside. How long do you think it takes to make wine? How long do you think it takes to make not just any old wine, but the best wine? Now, I'm not a wine drinker, but I can understand the physics of making wine. But how long does it take to make wine? Weeks? Months? Years? They say the best wine takes years to make. Well, this miracle just short-circuited the natural course of time. And think of some of the other miracles that Jesus displayed. Calming the stormy sea. Multiplying the loaves and the fish. Walking on the water. You see, Jesus is the Lord of all creation. And we are part of that creation. So Jesus is the Lord in every situation. Jesus is the Lord of all creation. And then finally, Jesus is the Lord of transformation. You see, out of those old water jars came the new wine. The best ever. You know, the contents of those old jars, they were used for religious cleansing. That's what they were used for. They're ritual, religious rituals. But we see that the contents of those old jars, the water, was transformed into something brand new, the wine. And when Jesus is the Lord of our lives, a vital transformation takes place. One that goes beyond mere religious cleansing, which is just external. It's a miraculous change from within. You know, we try to clean up the outside. We dress pretty. We look pretty. We try to put forth this good image. But we know that's only mere religious cleansing. But the Lord comes in and transforms us, not just cleans us up on the outside, but cleans us up from the inside. It's an internal transformation. It's where emptiness is replaced by fullness, where disappointment is replaced by joy, where aimlessness is replaced by purpose and direction. It's where our religion, which is external, becomes reality that which is internal. And so this miracle is from within, when Jesus is the Lord of our lives. A transformation takes place inside of us. It changes our heart. It changes our motives. It changes our desires. It's more than just a Band-Aid approach. Everything that the world has to offer to try to change and make this place a better world and to make people better, those are just Band-Aid approaches. They just cover up 
the surface. But when Jesus is Lord of our lives, he comes in and changes us from the inside out. And that change starts on the inside, and then it's, we see the results on the outside. And so, Jesus is the Lord of transformation.